Welcome to the Mayo Clinic Orthopedic Surgery Podcast, a curated series of interviews and discussions highlighting the three shields of orthopedic surgery at Mayo Clinic, clinical practice, research, and education. Welcome back to the Mayo Clinic Orthopedic Surgery Podcast. We've got another great clinical highlight today talking about hip and knee arthroplasty. Particularly, we're going to talk about hip arthroplasty and the role of extended trochanteric osteotomy. It's, a, it's an old technique, but one that we continue to sort of reinvent, reinvent and evolve over time. I've got Dr. Matt Abdel, who's professor of orthopedic surgery here and one of our hip and knee reconstruction surgery surgeons and does a very high volume of revision and complex uh, total hip arthroplasty. Thanks for joining us today, Matt. Thanks for having us, John. It's an exciting area uh, of exposures and how to manage the femur during revision hip arthroplasty. That's great. And obviously, uh, these these areas are, um, are are things that people do, but I think there's not a lot of um, sophistication sometimes in terms of how we do it. And uh, so I know you've been writing a lot about this. So can you tell us a little bit about common modes of failure of hip arthroplasty uh, in the modern era? Yeah, so I mean, hips can fail via a variety of formats, and it's based upon the time in which they were done. So traditionally, they're polyethylene wear and osteolysis. That's with conventional polyethylene. And more contemporarily now, it's based upon periprosthetic joint infection and hip instability. Hip dislocation is the number one cause of why revision hip arthroplasties fail and the number one aseptic reason in which they fail. And there are still component issues, even though surgical technique and implant designs improved, hip revisions are still increasing because the actual volume of hip arthroplasties being on primaries is also increasing. So the absolute number of revisions is greater than ever right now. As, as busy as you guys are uh, in terms of the hip and uh, the hip revision uh, practice, it sure seems like that from the outside. So there's, there's always going to be a need for these techniques to manage these more complex situations. Can you describe some of the reasons why you choose to do an osteotomy and maybe even uh, more specifically, why, why uh, indications in which you'd say you wouldn't need to have an osteotomy? Yeah. So, I, you know, extended trochanteric osteotomy in my hands and my thought processes is the single most powerful revision technique you can have. It allows me to access the femur for well-fixed components, including distally well-fixed uncemented components. It allows me to access the femur and cement mantles distally. It allows me to correct sagittal or coronal deformities in the proximal femur. It allows me to gain acetabular exposure. So pelvic discontinuities, custom hemipelvis reconstructions after tumor reconstruction. So you get better acetabular exposure. And maybe most importantly, John, in 2020, it allows me to put in the most common stem safely and reliably. And that is a modular fluted taper stem in which I want the fluted taper portion stem to gauge the distal femur for axial rotational stability. Now, when would I not do it? I would not do it in a routine hip femoral component that I need to remove from the top, um, or that I can remove from the top that's got metaphyseal fixation if it's uncemented, or a cemented stem that's got a short cement mantle. So metaphyseal fixation, uncemented stem, without a trochanter that's in the way, I can get that from the top. Short cemented stem without a long cement plug, again, trochanter on the way, I can get that from the top as well. Is infection a contraindication to osteotomy in which you're going to have to fix the osteotomy or is that uh, a technique that you sometimes use? No, it's probably the most common time in which I utilize it. It's when I've got a trochanter that's at risk. I need a thorough debridement. I've got to get every bit of that cement and foreign debris from the canal. 
or I've got a revision component that, which I need to remove and get all that hardware out, um, I'll utilize that. What I will change, John, is how I fix that osteotomy at the end. So traditionally, if I was doing an aseptic revision, I'll utilize two cables, one a centimeter distal from the distal aspect of the osteotomy and one right below the lesser trochanter. In these scenarios, I'd utilize two wires, monofilament wires, just like as we close infection cases, I don't want monofilament, uh, polyfilament suture. I want monofilament wires, monofilament sutures. That sure makes sense. One of the things I'm, uh, as a simple shoulder surgeon always remained a little bit confusing to me was the different styles and uh, eponyms in terms of the osteotomies. Can you describe the orientation of those osteotomies uh, for, for the surgeons in practice? Yeah, we, uh, I'm going to summarize it. We just recently published our paper in JBJS American, and this is an area of confusion. So we've summarized the two big flavors of osteotomies. There are laterally-based Proposky, Dr. Wayne Proposky from Rush osteotomies, in which the lateral third of the femur, including the greater trochanter, is elevated, most commonly utilized by posterior approach surgeons. The second osteotomy is a so-called Wagner or anterior-based osteotomy. Classically, those are utilized by surgeons that utilize anterolateral or modified uh, anterolateral approaches in which the anterior third of the proximal femur is elevated, including the anterior third of the greater trochanter, and it gives you access. I use both. If I've got a coronal deformity, I may use one. If I've got a big sagittal deformity, particularly a big bow anterior in the femur, I'll utilize the other, the anterior-based Wagner The final thing I'll just say is those are the majority of osteotomies at the Mayo Clinic. There are so-called transfemoral osteotomies, and people confuse that. And what a transfemoral is, is really the Wagner osteotomy, but it goes down to, I use imperiopisetic fractures, goes down to a, a certain length, usually 12 to 16 centimeters, and both the anterior and posterior limbs are osteotomized. So you actually have three different pieces, the distal femur, the anterior and posterior aspects of the osteotomy there. So that's how the transfemoral people confuse that is different than the Wagner or the Popovsky osteotomy. And would you consider both the Wagner and the Proprosky osteotomies in the ETO classification or would, uh, is it uh, ETO only used for the posteriorly based osteotomies? All of them are going to be ETOs. And I always uh, kind of think about it that once I've gone past the trochanter and past the ridge and where it kind of goes from the tephysis to metadiaphyseal flare, that that is an extended trochanteric osteotomy. So traditionally 12 to 16 centimeters, whether it's laterally based, anteriorly based, or transfemoral, all of those are ETOs. Perfect. Super helpful to give some uh, clarity there. Can you talk to us about uh, exact your mechanisms for, let's say you're going to do, um, uh, choose whichever one you do more commonly, but talk to us about uh, your steps, how you measure, how you uh, determine where you're going to make it and uh, how you complete it and some areas where you could get into trouble in terms of uh, the terminology I've heard before is the grenade osteotomy, where you're trying to put things back together because it, it all kind of went sideways on you during surgery. Yeah. I mean, you want, clearly want to avoid the grenade osteotomy. It's all with planning. I always say there's seven steps to doing a good ETL. So the first step is you're going to want to plan it. So I'll plan the fluted tapered portion of the stem, uh, which is usually what you're going to put in for an ETL. And I'll plan on x-ray where the other stem has failed or ends make sure I have about two centimeters isthmus in contemporary practice and how I can build that up. That's how I do my length. It's either 12 to 16 centimeters. Number two, expose appropriately and do a subvastus approach. I'll do a subvastus, usually a couple of centimeters distal to my osteotomy length. Let's call it a short osteotomy, 12 centimeters. I'll do subvastus exposure, two centimeters distal to that. So I've got access so I don't shorten the fragment. Number three, 
do the posterior limb of the osteotomy. Usually I'm going to do a proski most of the time. It's a lateral third. Number four, take a small saw and do at 45 degrees the transverse limb of the osteotomy, but do not connect the posterior limb and transverse limb. That would be a stress riser. I'll come back to that. Now, next, you're going to do the anterior limb of the osteotomy because you've got a subvastus approach. So don't wait for the osteotomy to crack in the wrong spot. Go as anterior and proximal as you can. Number six, you're going to want to connect the anterior and transverse limbs and the posterior and transverse limbs with a pencil tip burr because then it's kind of rounded nicely. And then finally, you're going to want to have patience with wide osteotomes going over the lateral shoulder of the implant, elevating the lateral third of the femur. So I'll usually put two 20 millimeter osteotomes and gently tap them individually going forward and minimize that urge to lever on it. Allow it to go over that osteotomy will osteotomize. That's why it's called osteotomy, osteotomize itself and then open up the femur on its own. That's really helpful. Thankful, thankfully, all of us orthopedic surgeons are very patient. So we can just patiently, especially in the hip and knee arthroplasty <laughs> yeah, world, right, Abdel? Yeah, right. So um, you just wrote up a big series, a massive series of these patients who had ETOs at uh, Mayo Clinic. Can you tell us a little bit about what you found? Yeah, so we looked at 612 ETOs. They were done between 2003 and 2013, meaning follow up of five years. That's why we ended 2013. And um, it was remarkable. Uh, kind of the big take home from that are, 98% of, uni, of osteotomy fragments unite at John, 98%. Number two, big take home. It took about six months for the unions to heal, uh, the fragments to, to unite. So be patient with them. We see them at three months and I usually see them at four to five months, but it, the mean was six months. Number three, there was some osteotomy migration, but it was minimal. It was only three millimeters. And finally, the number one complication was indeed osteotomy fragment fracture intraoperative that occurred 4% of the time and postoperative 0.5. So what that told me, because it was eight times more common intraoperative is be patient at that one step we just talked about. Be patient. If you don't fracture it intraoperatively, the likelihood of that having any issues postoperatively is very, very rare. That's really helpful. And I'm going to sort of summarize what we talked about, and then you can add any uh, further thoughts that you have about it uh, afterwards. But it sure sounds like the extended trochanteric osteotomy family is, um, is a tool that we should not forget about, and we should potentially even use more liberally than, than we do now. And uh, I think as a, a non-hip and knee arthroplasty surgeon, I would have a high threshold to do an osteotomy, but it sure sounds like the um, with a, a fairly standardized technique, you can do this in a relatively efficient way um, with a relatively low rate of complications, both migration and otherwise. And I think anybody, uh, I do osteotomy, osteotomies in the proximal humerus, and I always am um, surprised at how much better exposure I can get, particularly of the canal and uh, debridement with, um, with infection. So probably a technique that we should consider, consider using earlier rather than waiting for it to happen, happen on its own. And, and the Mayo series certainly supports that with just um, almost uh, perfect clinical outcomes uh, or uh, healing rates after surgery. Yeah, that's right. It's an extremely powerful technique that protects the trochanter and tissue sparing approach. And um, it really has facilitated the most complex of revisions and converted them into relatively straightforward revisions. So keep it in your bag of tricks and keep it at the top of the list in your bag of tricks. Thanks for uh, your research on this. And uh, if, if some of our readers want to see, obviously, this is a pretty visual thing in terms of thinking about how to do it, where should they look to learn more about the techniques uh, for doing this in their practice and, um, and, and streamlining it? 
Yeah, good question, John. So the paper will be published in JBGS American. Uh, in there, there's uh, several illustrations, interoperable pictures, uh, several patients are mine. And we've also got a JBGS surgical insights that will go into that particular approach step by step. And I've also narrated a video of me doing one that will give the uh, reader and the surgeon some additional uh, incremental information, specifically on surgical tips and tricks. Beautiful. I think I could probably do one after hearing you talk about it, but how about I just keep sending them to you for a little while? Does that work? Send them all over. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Thanks so much for joining us, Dr. Abdel. Thanks, Dr. Marlowe. Pleasure.